This is the Branches Podcast. We try to keep it simple in this family of faith. Love God and love people. Let's not make it harder than Jesus intended. If you'd like to know more about our community of faith, you can visit us at branchesoc.com. Good morning. Maybe it's afternoon. Maybe it's evening. I don't know when you're watching this. But the truth of what I'm going to say, it's good anytime. Um, We're going to look at the most famous words from Jesus. This whole series we've been looking at the words of Jesus, keeping it very simple. And we were we're going to look at his most famous words in John 3:16. Now, I can tell you that verse right now, but in our minds for most of us, we've already kind of turned it off. Oh yeah, yeah, I know that one. We've seen it so much that it's almost like it's dulled. We've heard it. Uh, maybe some of you have been taught it, but as we hear those words, when you hear something too much, it just kind of becomes cliche. Um, we see it at sporting events. We've seen it, um, online. We've seen it in social media. And yet it, what happens with familiarity is it dulls beauty. When we see something that's beautiful, but we, we begin to take it for granted, and we do that with people, we do it with nature, we do it in relationships, and so that familiarity dulls the beauty. But yet, Jesus' words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If we can look at those words with new eyes or go back and take away some of that familiarity and just approach it as if it's new, there's, that's everything. If we know this, if we know this truth, if it's caught, everything else opens up. In um, January of 2016, my view of a life motto was completely transformed. Um, When I was younger, I had um, read Nietzsche, Nietzsche, however you want to pronounce his name. Ah, Scratch that. I said Nietzsche. It wasn't him. I just went through a whole dialogue with Daniel on how we're going to fix that. He just said, eh, just say you messed up so you know what I messed up. It's actually Kierkegaard. And he said, uh, the most important thing in life is to will the one thing. And I love the simplicity of that phrase, one thing. And then Jesus said to Martha that Mary had chosen one thing and that it would not be taken from her. And so... I grabbed onto that. And then I read from Frank Laubach when he talked about the importance of the friendship with God. And I looked at that and I thought of that beauty as the one thing. That's what Mary's doing, right? And so I took that phrase and I just stole it. And I passed it off as my own. Uh, 
you know, when you're writing, back when we were writing letters, I would always finish instead of sincerely boog, it was one thing, boog. And um, I would say it, I would teach on it. And that one thing was friendship with God. And I would share about it with everybody and to the point where um, it became familiar and synonymous with me. But then in January of 2016, everything changed. Because I looked at that and realized, you know what? That's not the one thing. This passage reveals and helps explain what the real one thing is. So let's see what Jesus tells Nicodemus the one thing is. And you got to remember that uh, if you don't already know this, Nicodemus is a God expert. Uh, he's on the ruling council. Uh, he basically gets up in the morning and goes with all of the other God experts and they just talk about God, who God is, who they are in relationship with God. They've got to become the experts on who God is. So they just discuss it and talk about it all the time. And so as the sun is setting on this particular night, Nicodemus is waiting. We're not exactly sure, but most likely he's waiting to approach Jesus at night because Jesus was a controversial figure and Nicodemus was a well-known public figure. And to go and approach Jesus was a statement. And he wasn't ready to make that statement. So he wanted to come at night, but he was seeking Jesus, as he said, because I've heard of you, we respect you. And of course, Nicodemus always talks about God and he wants to talk to Jesus about God. And so he gets there and in the beginning of their conversation, Nicodemus is kind of saying, hey, I kind of know you're a big deal and this and that. And that's, you know, common for right then at that moment, that's when Jesus is supposed to say, hey, I've heard of you, Nicodemus. He doesn't do that. He gets right into it. And as they're talking about the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you must be born again. Completely confusing to Nicodemus to the point where he goes, what? Are you telling me that I need to go back in to my mom's womb? But what we miss in that conversation is the context of that passage. And so we are in John chapter three still, but we're in the beginning part of it. So if you have your Bible, go there. All right, now that you have your Bibles open, even if it's through your phone, doesn't matter. It's God's word, right? And Jesus says you must be born again. And the confusion sets in, but it sets even more powerfully because he says, born again. And the reason that Nicodemus refers back to his mother is because the word again, there's two ways that that word could go, or two ways, two different words for it. One means the beginning of an act, to be born. And so that's not the word that's used here though. So what's said here is the word that means a repeated action by the original source. So it's not like a copy. It's not like you're trying to do it again. It's that whatever originally gave birth needs to do that again. 
And that's why he's like, what do you mean? Go back to my mom? So for example, um, if, and Max Lucado is the one that gave me this, this, this truth, which is fantastic. He said, it's like, if he went to go paint the Mona Lisa and then he finished and, you know, of course it's going to look very different from the original. And he says, see, look, I painted the Mona Lisa again. That's not what this means. So to be born again or to be painted again using the same thinking is that Michelangelo, Da Vinci, whoever that guy's name is, Da Vinci, by the way, he would have to do it again. He would have to be the one. Max Lucado could not do it. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying, look, no, you can't do this of your own. That's not your mom. You must be born again. And so Nicodemus asked the obvious question. How? How can this be? And that's when we hear the words that are to be found in our system of numbers, John 3.16. Because Jesus' response is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's the key to understanding what it means to be born again. Because when we know this love, it changes everything. And we don't make the change. God does it. Because only he can do it again. The original source has to create this change. So let's look at this, these words. For God so loved. The word that's used there is not a word that means friendship or empathy, or romance. The word that you use there is unconditional. It's the highest form of love. In fact, at the end of this little section here, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, when we hear that one and only son, we can look at it and say, oh, so he was an only child because there's not any siblings, there's no other brother, there's no other... No, that phrase means beloved. And you need to look at the love that a parent, a father, has for his child. And so when we talk about God's love, so God, what does that mean that he loved? He loved so much that he gave his beloved son. Any parent knows what I'm talking about, what that love means, how to define that love, because you feel it, you sense it, you would give up anything for your child. Yet Jesus is saying that God so loved you that he gave his only son. The word gave, not that, he, notice that he doesn't say sent. For God so loved the world that he sent. Because there's a significant difference between the word sent and gave. And that word gave helps us to understand what love is. Love is sacrificial. So God, it wasn't a feeling. It was an action. An action from a deep sense of agape, of love. Because when you love someone like that, you can't help but act. And no matter what it takes, even if it's your beloved son, that's how much God loves you. And so 
we have Nicodemus here hearing this. And even though they talked about God all the time, he woke up every day as an expert, a God expert. This is transformational for him. To think of God in this way. For God so loved the world. That also is going to be very foreign to a leader in the Jewish culture at this time. Because for them, God loved Israel and yeah, the world. The world by definition, what it was typically, this word was typically used for, meant those who are not yet following God. Uh, rebels. Because it's like if you have, you know, you're a bunch of siblings in your home and your parents have loved each of you the same and one of them says, I'm out of here. That's the world. That's how this term was used all the time. And so, even the enemies of God, as it says in Romans, while we were yet enemies of God, he loved us. This kind of love. While we were enemies, the world. So, for God so loved the world, which means no one should consider themselves excluded. You're not born into a special club. It doesn't come through your parents. God has singled out each of us because he loves all of us, even your enemies, even those that look, smell, and sound different than you. God loves them. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But then we leave out the next thing that Jesus says, and I don't want to leave that out because it helps us to understand what we just looked at. Because when we think of God's love for us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, we can't help but take it out of context and see it the way we understand it should be understood, which is, well, God loved because we earned it, because it was merited. God loves those who do the right things for the right reasons, because, well, there's no way he would just love someone that hasn't earned it or hasn't performed. But Jesus' next words already answer that. He says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn, which means to separate. That's how we think of it, right? That's how I would think of it. Well, if God, he said, For God did not send. Notice he uses the word send. He goes, I didn't, he didn't send. He gave his son into the world to condemn. Not to condemn, but to save through him. So don't spend another minute contemplating your worthiness because you have been defined as beautiful, as worthy by God's verb of love, by his action. He showed that he loves you. This truth, I'm teaching it right now, but, but it's not taught. It's caught. So we have Nicodemus being taught this. I don't know when it clicked in, but at some point it clicked in because we see Nicodemus come back. We see him come back into the story. And he comes back publicly. So at some point, he catches this truth that God loved him so much and it turns everything upside down. And he, 
He's willing to give up everything, his position of power, because of this love. For me, there's been a few moments where I've caught this truth. Well, I've been taught it plenty of times. I've tried to teach it to myself. But someone shared this story with me, and when they shared it, for me, I caught it. It was um, a story of a, of a man who was at war. And when they told me this story, I couldn't remember if it was the Korean War or the Vietnam War. But he was there with his fellow soldiers and especially one man that had become a good friend of his. And uh, a grenade showed up and his friend recognized it and then jumped on the grenade saving this man and he ended up getting through the war but he couldn't get through what had happened not only was he devastated because his friend died but he was devastated by love it was confusing it was overwhelming, it short-circuited everything. So to try to get through this or move through this because he felt guilty for being loved. It's as if he felt condemned for being loved. So he went to this man's parents to apologize for not saving their son, for not doing something, for maybe not jumping on the grenade first. or He just thought it was his fault. Why should I be given this? And so, of course, the fallen soldier's parents were devastated. But they took him into his house. And it was one of those houses where they had the, the old couches with the fabric and the, the plaid. And then a big shaggy carpet. Old cuckoo clock plates on little uh, shelves. I don't know why, but back in the day, we'd put plates up on the shelves. And as he's sharing this with them and apologizing them, they're just, they're just kind of nodding. And then he asked them this question. Because they had communicated with their son prior to his sacrifice. And he said, when he wrote back and he talked about me, did, did he love me? Not romance, not friendly, did he, did he love me? And his mom responded in a very unique way. She said, stop. Looked him dead in the eye and said, stop. But he couldn't stop. He needed to know, was he loved? Did he love me? She looked away, stop. But did he love me? What more did my son need to do to prove to you his love than by giving his life away? And that's when I could catch a little bit of that. God so loved you 
that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have full eternal life. You see, God didn't come to condemn us because we were already condemned. We were, we were on our way to destruction. And because God loved us so much, he could not stand by and let this happen. That love needed action because you can't see that person whom you love die when you can do something about it. And the only one that could do anything about it was God himself. Like being born, to be born again, we can't create that process. We're passive in that, it's done unto us. No baby has ever been born and goes, look what I just did. And in the same way, the life we've been given, when we are born again, God has to do it. How? By his love for us, by his sacrificial love. And through that love, we turn to him and let him begin that process in us. And so for me, knowing this, being reminded of this in January of 2016, it's such a powerful vision. I, I can't keep saying one thing to mean friendship with God. The one thing that I try to say, proclaim, and write everywhere is that God loves us unconditionally and recklessly because that's who he is and we are lovable whether we feel like it or not. And so when you think of this verse, for God so loved the world, we need to put our name in this. For God so loved Bug that he gave his son, that if Bug believes in him, Bug shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is not just about heaven and hell. This is so much bigger. Nowhere in this passage does it talk about someone being sent to hell. This is about life, real life. And to not have life is to perish. For God so loved, and put your own name in here, that he gave his son, that if you believe in him, he shall not perish, but you shall have eternal life, real life, full life, here and afterwards. God loves you.